0: Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. Hi, everybody. Trace Blackmore here, your host for Scaling Up H2O. Folks, I am so excited about today's show. We have so much information packed into today's show that we're probably not going to be able to do it all in one show. I am speaking with one of the people that I consider my mentors, and you met him in Industrial Water Week a few months ago. His name is Jay Farmery, CWT, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about the story of how Jay and I got that mentor-mentee relationship. I went to the AWT technical training seminar and I wanna say it was middle 90s. And it was the first AWT event that I had ever attended. And I got to tell you, I was nervous. I didn't know anybody. And talk about drinking from a fire hose. I think we have a kinder, gentler technical training today. It's still a lot of information. And folks, it's still drinking from a fire hose. But back then, there was just so much stuff. And I want to say that the people that were presenting were a lot more intense back then. So again, I think we have a kinder, gentler training now, but the training back then was also amazing. And I remember I listened to so many awesome speakers get up there and teach me about water treatment. And I was thinking, wow, I really can't wait to go home and put some of this stuff into practice. And I did some of the same note-taking techniques that I've shared with you on this show with the present technical training. I did that back then. So I am telling you that stuff like that works. I'm not going to get too much into that today because we've talked about that on earlier shows. But something I also talk about on earlier shows is find people out there in the water treatment community that can be a mentor to you, that can help guide you through the trail of becoming a really good professional water treater and then use their knowledge, use their mistakes, use their triumphs to help you become that water treater that you want to be. So I remember I had asked a question and one of the attendees answered it in such a way that didn't make me feel so smart. Right then, I should have had every inclination to just shut down and and not advance myself in approaching somebody for as a mentor. Now, this was not Jay that did this. This was somebody else, and he's no longer one of the the trainers, but he did a great job. He just didn't think that I had a very smart question. With that, I decided with all of that self-doubt because of what that speaker said to me, I was still going to introduce myself to the speakers so they at least knew who Trace Blackmore was. And I remember I sat down, I made it a point to sit down next to Jay Farmery and then Bruce Ketrick sat right on the other side of me. Folks, that was one of the most intimidating lunches I have ever had. I regard both of those individuals as water treatment Jedi. And they were asking me questions. They were asking the table questions. They did a really good job of keeping dialogue going during lunch. And I remember thinking, I need to get to know these two individuals. And I went to the training the following year. And I think that's so key when you're going to any training seminar like the AWT technical training, you have to make sure that you're not going in with the mindset that I'm going once and I'm going to know everything from going once. Folks, it is that drinking from a fire hose scenario. And if you can just get a little bit out of that fire hose to fill your cup and the cup is what you don't know. I don't know something. I'm going to try to figure out the things that I don't know. And I'm going to start filling my cup up with that. That's why you go multiple times. So I went the next year and I made it a point to approach Jay Farmery and compliment him that I really thought he was the water treater that I wanted to become. And I asked him if he would be a mentor, and he had no reason to say yes, but he did say yes, and that's been for just about 20 years, if not 20 years, and Jay has just been phenomenal. Uh, I also asked that question to to Bruce Ketrick, and, and he's been great too. And folks, I tell you, it's so much easier to become better at this job when you're not doing it alone. So whether you're reaching out to one of your co-workers or maybe your boss or somebody you met at a training seminar, it is so much easier to become a better water treater when you have people helping you out. And Jay has done exactly that for the amount of time that I have known him, he has just been a window of knowledge. He never holds anything back, and if I ask a question, I normally get more information back than I really want, but I learn through the process. I don't know if you've ever asked Jay Farmery a question, but you are not going to get an answer back. You're gonna get about 20 questions back, And because of those 20 questions, you're able to learn through the process. And the thing that he does, and I'm going to have to ask him if he knows he does this or not, but he now positions me that I don't ever have to ask him that question again. I ask him a new question because he taught me how to think through the issue that I was having in a way that I could think through it the next time that that issue came up. So. I am going to ask Jay about that question and so many more because my guest today is Jay Farmery, CWT. I know you're going to enjoy this interview, so please welcome Jay Farmery, CWT. My lab partner today is Jay Farmery. Jay, thank you so much for coming on Scaling Up. I know we've tried doing this once before. We had some technical issues, but you and I said, hey, we're here in sunny San Diego together at the AWT technical training. So why not just get together and do this interview? So thank you for being here. Thank you for the training that you do for AWT. We're gonna talk about that a little bit. And uh, thank you for talking to the Scaling Up Nation. Welcome, Jay.
1: Thank you, Trace. I first want to say I really appreciate you and your podcasts. You're doing a really great job.
0: Well, Jay, I talk a lot about mentors on the show, and you and I have known each other, is it coming on 20 years? It has to be. And I remember that the first time I believe I I ever laid eyes on you, I didn't know who Jay Farmery was. I I listened to you at an AWT technical training seminar and I said, that is a smart dude. That guy knows water treatment and I want to know at least a small fraction of what he knows. I need to connect myself with that guy. And I made it a point that I ate lunch next to you and I was too scared the first time I met you to ask if you would mentor me. But the next time I saw you, I asked you those exact words and you so graciously said, absolutely, I will do that. And Jay, you've been a tremendous mentor and it's because of people like yourself pouring into me that I'm able to do this show. So I appreciate you thanking me, but this is a result of me doing exactly what I tell other people in the Scaling Up Nation to do, that it takes a village to build any water treater, and I wanna thank you for being my mentor.
1: Well, we always wanna give back to this industry. And basically, it's it's what you learn and what you wanna give back. And being a smart dude, as Colin says, sometimes we have to make it up.
0: That's right, and he does that with a with a British accent, so he sounds even smarter when he does that. Colin's supposed to come on the show. He keeps blowing me off, so eventually I think I'll get Colin to oh, come on. will definitely get Colin to We me. live in the same state, but we never see each other. That happens
1: a lot. Fred Potoff used to be on a board of directors at one time, and uh, he always said the only time we ever see which one another, when we're both in Pittsburgh, is when
0: we come out of, out of Pittsburgh. Gotcha, uh, John is the same way. So uh, I guess that's just how it works. We're all so busy doing our jobs. We have to take time out of doing our jobs to come to places like AWT venues, and that's why you and I are able to talk like we are today. Well, Jay, I have known you for years. Uh, Again, I consider you my mentor. You've helped me so much, but I know there's some people out there in the Scaling Up Nation that might not have met Jay Farmer yet. So do you mind telling them a little bit about yourself?
1: Fine, Trace. Uh, basically, I'm executive consultant for Cyrus Rice Water Consultants. And I'm also the technical director and vice president of operations for GLA Water Consultants. GLA Water Consultants is an, another water treatment company just like everybody else. And uh, Cyrus Rice is just strictly a consulting firm. Uh, we provide consulting to the end users and to other AWT members. and. Quite a few things across the nation, across the world. I've been to a lot of different places and do a lot of different things in refineries,
0: steel mills, you name it. I've seen, just about seen a lot. Yeah, you have a very impressive resume. Nation, I'm sure you know this, I'm sure I've said it on the phone before, but when I don't know the answer, Jay is one of the people that I call. And Jay, you have a knack that you never give a direct answer. You ask 40 more questions on top of my one question. And I tell you, by you doing that, I start thinking about things in a different way, and more often than not, I come up with my own answer. Do you do that on purpose? Well, the biggest thing, part of it, yes. Because you have to
1: find out more about a system. As I was telling somebody downstairs, you can have two buildings sitting right next to one another. They may have the same water going in, but they have different pieces of equipment. And if you really look at the different pieces of equipment, even though they both may be condensers or cooling towers or boilers or whatever they are, they're probably a little bit different and they have different dynamics. So by knowing all the dynamics, then you make the right choice, and then metallurgy also becomes a big part.
0: Well, you're laying down a bunch of words that we're getting ready to unpack later in the show. One thing I want to start with is, how did you get into water treatment? Well, it's
1: been a long time ago. In college, I basically decided I needed to do some type of internship. And that's before colleges really did a lot of internships. But I, uh, my mentor in college was my uh, pcam professor. Hey, I'd like you to do an internship. How about going to work for Bethlehem Steel? And it's Bethlehem. That's the way they say it in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. So
0: not Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Bedlam. There you go, now you
1: know. So basically I start working in Bethlehem Steel's or Bethlehem Steel's. Uh, wastewater, working on some projects for that for them under the guidance of my my mentor and professor at school. So didn't realize that that was going to be my life's calling. So then I left uh, school and and I started to work at U.S. Steel, and I worked at Clarent Works. clarent Works is a big chemical plant. Uh, p- most people think it is just a coke works. But they were taking all the off-gasses from the coke and making it into che- different chemicals. And they had multiple different areas. And I worked in the labs. And we would go out doing shift work at different sites across the Clariton Coke Works.
0: Now, now, Jay, I'm betting a lot of people in the nation don't know what coke is. Now, to me, coke is Dixie Champagne. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. But that's not what we're talking about. What exactly is coke?
1: Coke is used to make steel. And it is one of the things used in the first part of the process. So they have to take coal and they have to bake it at very high temperatures. And the coal would give off off gases and provide different chemistries. But we would go, you know, I might be in the hydrogen sulfide lab or the the water lab or the coke oven gas lab. So we would go into the different labs, and during shift work, you'd do different tests at the different labs. But my favorite was the water lab. Uh, It felt like I was really doing something. And they had quench water, and they had other waters, so we would go out and test water by the coke oven batteries, and hey, the one thing you do when you walk by a coke oven battery, if if it's closed, it's an oven. So it's freezing outside, your back is cold, And if you're facing the coke oven battery, the front of you is hot, very hot.
0: So you got 1200 degrees on one side and negative zero, negative 15 on on the other. You got it. So I worked for US Steel for about a year and
1: I couldn't handle the layoffs. And then some of the the union mentality. As a young professional, uh, we would do work in a lab, I'd get my work done in two, three hours. And uh, basically, they, I would go into my boss and say, I want more work. I'm getting my work done in th- two hours, two, three hours. And the other guys would say, no, we don't do it that way. No, nah, I can't. I can't handle that. I mean, I like to be busy, I'm constantly busy. So I left Clariton Works, U.S. Steel and i said i did really didn't like the layoffs the layoffs is a new person in the union mentality uh, you get a lot of layoffs so um, i ended up start working for combustion engineering making foundry chemicals and i spent uh, about a year year doing foundry chemicals learning about foundry chemicals for, for alcohol resins phenolic resins things like that so it was manufacturing those kind of resins. And I said, eh, this is not where I want to be. So I ended up going to work for Calgon. And I think everybody knows Calgon's one of the original six-pack. And I was hired in research and development.
0: Now, you you know my dad started out with Calgon. Yes, yes I did. Did you know my dad? No,
1: I don't. Okay. Uh, basically, I started in Calgon. And basically, I had various choices, which way to go, you know, in research and development, you're doing different things. And as a new person in Calgon, hey, you do what they tell you to do. And at Calgon, we would always have reorganizations in research and development. It's reorganization, reorganization, and you would move from one lab and do one one chore, and then you'd move into somebody else's group and do another chore. So it was a lot of different things. We would go and see a lot of different people and do a lot of different things. you got to remember Calgon at the time not only had the water treatment business, it also had uh, the commodity business, which it was selling at the time, and the activated carbon business. So you moved from side to side and all over the place. So you get to do a little bit of everything and learn a lot about uh, varying products. I spent uh, 10 years with Calgon and uh, I really wanted to be out in the field. I was doing some tech service work, working with the technical engineers in the uh, various facilities. Never had been in the field, so then I went and started on my MBA. They told me, "Okay, we'll pay for your education. Uh, Go out and get an MBA." So I went out and got an MBA, and I worked. And so where my goal was was to move further into the water treatment market, but I happened to be my cousin also works worked for Calgon at the time. So I couldn't constantly move that way, so I ended up switching to Activated Carbon for a while.
0: Was that because of nepotism they were worried about? They had a nepotism
1: uh, conflict where if you got, if I could possibly report to him, which would never have happened, I don't think, because he was in a total, he was in a different area. So I moved to Activated Carbon for a couple of years, but I was all research and development. So then uh, when I finally finished up my MBA and wanted to stay at Calgon and moved the way I wanted to no, no, you're too important, you have patents. Hold it, guys, what's going on here? You tell me one thing and you go to another and then that's why I decided to leave Calgon. So I started to work with a a small association of group of guys. They had a small uh, manufacturing plant in Youngstown, Ohio and basically I became their technical director and blender making sure that their blends were properly made re- readjusting their formulations and, wor- and going out and provide tech service to them on the field with water treatment so i spent about five years with them doing water treatment one of the people that i know very well was chuck hammering so he was one he was one of the partners i also was a partner of that plant. so i became basically technical director Knowledgeable information. And I got to meet people like Jim Heimer and uh, some of his, some of the people that his, his other partner. But I got to meet those kind of people. I met other people. I met the guys from Crown Engineering, Jim, uh, James
0: McDonald, and other people that uh, are in our industry. James McDonald, friend of show, one of our, our biggest fans and supporters. So it was
1: it was very interesting. I got to meet those people. We, we, was, we were already coming. I had already been to IWC where most of us, most of us went at those times and I started coming doing work with I, AWT, et cetera. And you know, I was a technical director. I was going out and solving the technical issues which I really love to do. Solving, solving the technical issues of different water treatment. Facilities and being at different plants and seeing different things. At Calgon, I would go to big plants, ARCO and, and Exxon and, and other places wherever we had work. So that was how I got ideas for different products or different items and things like that. I mean, that's how, how you develop them. So that's what I really love to do. I mean, the tech service, the consulting, the helping, the engineering, things like that. Well, when you have five partners, you all sometimes don't wanna go in the same direction. Right, how do you deal with that? That was very difficult. And that's why I decided in 92 to leave and start my own business. And at that time, I started GLA Water Consultants. Now, you gotta remember, I never sold a thing in my life. (laughs) You were a technical guy. I was a technical guy. I was total research and developments, total solving of problems. But I didn't know one iota of how to go out and sell cold call or anything else. So I started a business from nothing. N- walked out, just went out and started a business from nothing, with no help, no anything, no extra accounts, not knowing how to go in to accounts and sell myself. Just go in and expound technical knowledge. And what do you do, as we all say? We, I gave away a lot of free consulting.
0: Sure, and I'm assuming that you still had the requirement to take care of your family, live indoors, and eat food, so you had to figure something out pretty quick.
1: Very quickly. Um, I was also, my kids were also playing ice hockey, so, and I didn't, couldn't take that away from them at the time. I was also refereeing ice hockey games, so my secondary job became refereeing ice hockey at night and being up to one, two o'clock, even doing adult games to two o'clock in the morning, and then getting up at five o'clock and doing everything else. So it went without a lot of sleep and without a lot of different things. So um, somewhere about six months in and I was doing a lot of different things and I was growing, starting to grow the business through technical sales. And uh, a friend of mine asked me, He knew me at Calgon. He says, hey, would you you have some time for consulting? And I said, sure. You know, hey, I'm I'm looking to make money any which way I can. So he brought me into Cyrus Rice. So he ended up leaving Cyrus Rice and I ended up purchasing Cyrus Rice.
0: So GLA Water Consultants, that is the water treatment company where you're doing the regular water treatment that us AWT members would do, is that a correct
1: That's That's the correct statement. Okay. We yeah. sell chemicals, we sell technical knowledge, we sell just about everything.
0: So now take us over on the Cyrus Rice side. What exactly do you do over there?
1: That's strictly providing consulting services, brain power. What's in my head and what I see and what's wrong and what's right. I'm also doing expert witness work. Uh, I go into plants and maybe I'll write a specification for them, a water treatment specification, a steel mill, write a water treatment specification so the companies can all bid it and we try to put them on an apples to apples basis. When I do uh, specification writing, I write performance based specifications, I don't tell them some consultants tell you what chemistry to use. I won't do that. There's a lot of chemistries, a lot of ways to skin the cat. I want performance-based specifications. So when I did a steel mill, I said my corrosion rates in this part of the plant is going to be this. My corrosion rates in this is going to be this. Filing factors are here, da-da-da, et cetera, and make it all based on performance. In the big companies, Chemtree, Nalco, GE, or Betts, at the time, would come in and uh, all bid it, and they if you really noticed it, when, when I write bid specs, how I do it is I write the specs, make sure the client understands what the specs mean, and so we have an interview of the different potential vendors. So now they all submit their bids. Well, no matter what you put in the specs and you tell them to do, give you all this kind of information, the specs can be all over the place. You know, one guy bids, 1.2, the other one bids 1.4, the other one bids 1. So, you know, you'd say, oh, go with the one. No, 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 you got to normalize them because they cheat a little bit. Now, so, what do you
0: mean by that, they cheat? They
1: may not use the right product dosages. They say, okay, maybe here I can get away with this. Oh, they may, they move the numbers. One may be only using, you, you can give them all the same water usage, but they move them up and down. So you ask them specific questions. So now you normalize them. You figure out, okay, how do I make this apples to apples and oranges to oranges?
0: Now, is that something you will do with the client? You write the spec and then you help them evaluate yes. the people that reply to it? Right. Okay.
1: You do this whole thing. This is a whole process. It's not an easy thing to do. I mean, basically, so now you have you have an Excel spreadsheet. And then I have also have questions. I look at their bid and say, okay, here's some problems. So now we're gonna gonna bring each one of them in and we're gonna have an interview. First off, I send them a bunch of written questions to say, okay, here's what I see in your bid. Tell me, explain to me this, da-da-da-da-da. And it could be maybe on the products they are using, like how much nitrite, one may, as I said, because I don't tell them how much nitrite, let's say in a closed loop, one may use 800 ppm of nitrite, the other one's using 1,000, the other one's using 1,200. Okay? So you want to normalize them. What else is in your product? Why are you using only 800? Why are you using 1,200? Why are you using 1,000? So you try to make them all equal. And you, you will see that your numbers now become almost lay on top of one another when you put everything on an apples-to-apples and oranges-to-oranges oranges basis. It's just like when you're bringing to me, when you're bringing a new water treater in or bringing a new company and to work with you. It's a partnership. It's just like hiring a new employee. Sure. So you have an interview, another interview of these people. You say, okay, who are your technical people? Who's going? How often are we going to see this technical person? How often are we going to see? I mean, because like in a steel mill, they will be there three to four days a week. They may be there five days a week, but somebody technically is going to be there almost every single day. So these million dollar jobs, somebody's there all the time you're there spending time in the wastewater plant, they might be spending something at the casting, the rolling mill, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to make sure, okay, who's gonna be here? Is it gonna be the technician, the intern, or somebody technical that can help solve his problems? Who's gonna be the service person? How often are we gonna see the technical person? So we do this with the client involved. And I'm asking the questions. I'm, and they'll t- give me questions they want to know too. You know, how often are you going to do your corrosion coupons? You know, we've already told them that how often, but okay. And like I like to see in a bid spec, like once a quarter in, on a, a large account where the water treater takes a quart of water or two quarts of water, sends it back to his lab, has his lab do analysis, and then he does whatever analysis he can be. And we make comparisons to see if everything's correct and proper. And if there isn't good correlation between that, you change and we oversee. So normally, on these kind of systems, I tend to provide quarterly oversight.
0: All right. So to recap, you've helped them write the bid specification. You've helped them quantify everybody that's replied to that bid specification. And now you help them select the right person that that you feel that they feel will work and meet that bid specification based on an apples to apples comparison because now you've normalized everything and now you're actually working into the contract and you're providing an expert set of eyes on everything that that company is bringing to fulfill that bid specification and saying all right we need to see more of this you're doing a great job here jay is that pretty much did i get that right yeah, you've hit the,
1: what it is is you're I can be your either your best friend or your worst nightmare. Because if you're not doing your job, that's a problem. But I don't really select who's getting picked. Everybody thinks I do. No. What it is is because we're doing interviews and we've had a pre-interview before the bid. Can you do the job? Do you have the resources to do that job? I mean, all the big companies have insurance, but we also have some small companies that have bid. Do they have the resources? We're trying to make sure they have the resources to do the job. So by getting them together, the company may have six or seven people that are sitting in on this meeting. So they're hearing, and this is an interview, just like you would for a job. Anybody wants a job, they're going to have an interview, and we're gonna put them under pressure. You say this in your bid spec and and you put them under pressure and what happens is the people understand who is gonna be their best partner in making money for their company. So it provides a very good documentation for the client to choose a partner to be part of his life.
0: I gotta tell you, Jay, that sounds amazing. Companies that we work with, we've never encountered that. We will be asked to bid on something, and nine times out of ten, if not ten times out of ten, it always goes to low price. And I always feel like I am wasting my time because you taught me very well, my dad taught me very well, that if you're going to do water treatment, you're going to do it right and there's so many other companies that are just gonna throw a number at that, and normally it's a lower number, and it comes in so many times lower than what I could do it for. I can't even pay a guy to drive out there sometimes for the numbers that I see on bid specifications. We just say, you know what, we're just not gonna do bid work. When it gets messed up, that's when they're gonna call us and we'll fix the problem. Should I be thinking differently?
1: No, I think you've hit the nail right on the head because um, one of the things is sort of say, Local company in Pittsburgh that asked us to do, do exactly that, write a bid spec. We wrote a bid spec. The first time we saw somebody bid it, they came in at such a low number it was ninety some buildings for a school district, and uh, they bid such a low number, said they can't do it. They can't do it. They figured they well we got we had the low bid. Well, they gave them the chance and they found out they couldn't do the job. So I mean th- that happens a lot. But it's when, when you do a bid bid or bid spec like we do it, and equalize it, what happens is all of them say, lowest and most responsible bidder. It comes down to that most responsible. They have that option to move to a bidder that's more technically responsible for what's going to happen. Because we're dealing with pieces of equipment, and most of these plants, half a million dollars, you know, a set of new coils might be forty thousand to to buy, purchase the coils, and another twenty thousand to install. You know, depending on where where the coils are. How about a new boiler? What's going on? You know, you're dealing with very expensive pieces of equipment. I mean, a boiler in a uh, one of our sugar plants that we basically are re tubing. They're spending one point two million dollars to re tube. And that boiler's down, so right now they're not producing from that. Right, they're not producing from that. And That's the biggest thing with a lot of the plants we deal with, most of the food plants, things like that. They generate their own electricity, so they got their steam boilers. They're either doing uh, steam conversion with turbines, or they're having gas-fired turbines and making steam as a byproduct. Orange juice plants do that a lot. You know, have got different manufacturers that do these kind of things, so it's, it's seeing all this and trying to help the client to make money. I mean, that's what it is and trying to save him money too. I mean, my biggest thing is for end users, bidding it the way or setting it up the way we, do, we have it set up to do, that provides them a real return on their investment because they may be paying me to do certain things of what it is, is they end up winning in the long haul.
0: Gotcha. Well, Jay, you've seen a lot more bid specifications than most people. How often do you see a requirement for a certified water technologist?
1: Well, I start putting it into all the bid specs that I write. People would ask me about it and I says, basically, we're trying to find qualified people. And I put it in a lot of bid specifications to get people. And I've seen it more and more people copy my bid specs. They put it in some, somebody else's. So it has been copied quite
0: a bit. So we're starting to see it more and more in specifications. Well, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. So there's a listener they're driving down the road right now. They don't see any need to get their certified water technologist designation. And they're thinking, oh, well, they're just trying to close the bid so only their friends or people they know or they can bid on it. What do you say to that?
1: Well, first off, if I write a bid spec, I will not bid it. I'm sorry, I won't do it. I will not let GLA do it either. Uh, I think that's unethical. Uh, I stand by my ethics and the certified water Technologists of having good ethics. That's really how I wanna be. And the day I stop doing that, it's another problem. The biggest thing is why I put certified water technologists in. And then because I was part of helping develop a test and things like that. Uh, Angela will correct you, it's an examination. Examination, right. A knowledge examination because really here at training, we do not teach to the exam. It's your general knowledge. That's what it's supposed to be. But we've worked with the insurance companies like Mike Hyam. Hey, if you have a certified water technologist, it reduces your 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 cost, your premiums. So the importance of becoming significantly. A, under right, that. right, it is significant. So if you think about it, the importance of becoming a CWT is one to prove to yourself that you can pass that test and that you're equal to the other. CWTs, now that's what it means. You have to have some self-confidence. It provides you that get up and go, hey, I've achieved something. I mean, we all want to achieve something in life. So it brings you that sense of achievement. So now you feel a little bit more confident. I don't say every CWT does it 100% right. You know, not the way I would sometimes like to see it, but there's no standards. I mean, that's the other thing. as part of the AWT, we write, we we're trying to start to write standards. So it's getting standards and growing on those kind of things. Those standards are very important. For some of the things that I do with expert witness work and things like that, they're always asking, is there a standard out there? Or, is there a code or whatever else? There are none. The ASHRAE 188, 2015, and now 2018 is a standard. That is a true standard.
0: Well, let's talk about that because people get confused about is this a guideline, is this a standard, is this a recommendation? What are the differences with all of those?
1: Well, legally, if it's not a standard, it's not required. We may think it's good, but that doesn't mean just because you think it's good, that's the common practice. That's what you have to look at. So when you look at standards, that's a requirement. When you bid a bid spec for a new building or whatever else, it tells you, you must clean the system. You have to do it. If there, it's not in the bid spec, you don't have to do it, even though you think it's right. So you may bid it and put that in there, but now that drives your number up for that bid.
0: Right, and you're talking about new construction where we have to clean the internal pipe. Right. Now, as
1: part of NACE, we're writing that standard we're writing a pre-cleaning standard. So that will become a standard. And NACE has a lot of standards. And ASHRAE has standards. And CTI is writing standards. We're doing this to drive the industry, to try to help protect our members. This is what you gotta do. The thing is, if it's in that bid spec and you don't do it, then what happens is, now you're in violation. So if there's a problem, the same thing is, if you look at uh, a piece of equipment that might have water quality guidelines for a heat bump or for a boiler or whatever else, if you're outside those guidelines, you're taking full liability if there's a failure. So, I mean, those are the things you have to look at. What
0: happens? Now, you had mentioned AWT and standards. I know you are very involved with that. One, why don't we have water treatment standards, and what are you doing to help with that? And let me even add one more to that. Do we need them? Uh, Do you need standards? Well, you can say no,
1: but we all do it differently. So what happens when something fails or something breaks? If there's no standards, who cares? So now it's up to the jurors to figure out who they want to blame. If we have standards, guess what? And if you're living up to the standards, it makes it easy. Hey, hey, I'm doing everything per standard standard protocols. It gives you some liability protection. That's the biggest thing. Hey, I'm doing everything I can. It failed. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't my fault. Hey, the, the uh, Legionella, hey, I'm following the standard. We talk about negligence. You want to take negligence off the table because negligence is the functionality of the lawsuits. That really drives the dollar value. So if we can take negligence off the table, we're doing everything we can. We're doing it per industry standards. But if there's no industry standards, guess what? We can say you were negligent. It's an opinion. So how would you define negligence when it comes to water treatment? Because there's no standards, how do I know? And I see a lot of people's opinions come to a lot of different conclusions, but because there's no standards, their opinion is just like everything else. And Now we say, hey, an opinion is everybody has one. It doesn't mean anything, but if there's a rule or a law or a standard, it puts the guides right there.
0: I so badly want to start asking you about expert witness and how a jury would make their decision, but I'm, I'm going not to do that right now because I want to stay with the standard conversation. So you are a strong proponent that we need a basic standard that allows us to, as you say, take negligence off the table. Now we're on a more level playing field. And a lot of people might say, well, if I have this standard, you know, I'm not gonna be able to exceed the standard. And that's not true, is it? Sure, you can exceed the standard. If you're exceeding the standard, it might be even better.
1: But what it does is here's a minimum standard. So it's the same thing as when I write my bid specs. I say you will do this kind of testing. One of the biggest problems are that I see in our industry is there's a lot of people going out there and doing just the conductivity or just the inhibitor right. or the PATSA or whatever else. So they're not doing enough testing.
0: And those are the people that are getting the business on the low bids because people like you and I are actually putting it in that we're gonna do it right and we're too high and they're not gonna go with it. That's, That's
1: right. right. So what it does is raise all boats. Mm-hmm. We wanna to try to make everything equal. And as I said, by also making things equal, it protects our members and the other people in the water treatment industry. So it drives the people that aren't doing it right or don't want to do it right. They just want to come in and make their fast buck. It's the same as as doctors and lawyers and things like that. They write standards for their members. They write standards to drive the quacks away. Hopefully, they drive them away and get them out of the thing. This is a very professional business. We are water doctors. We have to know biology, chemistry, metallurgy, mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, regulatory. We're doing so many darn things. We are doctors. We are water doctors. We're solving our customers' problems. We solve our customers' problems so definitely. They are sick. We're helping them through. And the thing is, we have water doctors, we have interns, and we have physician's assistants. So we have the same thing. Now as a patient, do you just want to go see the intern or do you want to go see a quack or do you want to see the doctor or do you want to see the physician's, <laughs> physician's assistant and say, okay, I pay for this? You have that choice.
0: But if you die just seeing a quack, he's out of business tomorrow, and who cares? That's an interesting analogy. I think it puts it in perspective. So right now, we do not have any water treatment standards. What's being done to correct that? Uh, the AWT, through its standards task force, is
1: actually we're trying to write standards through the ASTM. Um, we're also looking at NACE's writing standards. So our certain standards for how you do
0: testing from ASTM. We'll Talk down. a little bit about ASTM, because there are a lot of members in the nation that may not know about that. ASTM
1: is the American Society for Testing Materials, and they have multiple, multiple groups. Indoor air quality, steel, everything. So they cover a lot of different bases, and there's a lot of different groups. But in water, that, or if you look, most of it like standard methods or ASTM, they have developed the test procedures. They also developed online procedures to make sure all the equipment meets the same criteria. So when you're doing your alkalinities, you're doing your chlorides, you do it the proper way. That's That's a written test method procedure and standard. So it tells you what chemistries to use. It keeps everything uniform. So when you're doing alkalinities, well, there's a lot of ways to report alkalinity, isn't there? We all report it as calcium carbonate, but you can report it as other things. So it gives you some type of qualification to compare numbers. I mean, you showed yesterday in your math converting chlorides to sodium chloride, things like that. So it's doing things and trying to make some give provide some consistency between your numbers. ASTM writes standards for producing metal. Is it ERW piping or is it whatever else? How do you form it? Do you post heat treat it? Do you not post heat treat it? And they give it different standards. How thick is that metal? So what happens is if you don't have standards, guess what? You can make it whatever thickness you want. If it fails tomorrow, who cares? So, I mean, that's what happens. But the people out there, the client, well, I bought that piece of pipe. Well, what piece of pipe did you buy? I don't know. Was it Schedule 5, Schedule 10, Schedule 40, Schedule 80? Was it ERW piping? How was it formed? Was it post-heat treated or not post-heat treated? So when we go into a heat pump, what's a heat pump? I mean, with your treatment and everything else, you've got different pieces of equipment. Some heat pumps have enhanced tubes, some don't. I mean, most of our chillers today in HVAC all have enhanced tubes. But if I have once through water, I may not have enhanced tubes.
0: Well, Jay, what are some of the things that you're actually doing with writing these standards? And can you tell us some of the things that you're suggesting that go in the standards? Well, for
1: the NACE standard, for the cleaning, we're going through the cleaning process of what you should do with new and even used equipment. Or what you should do when you're taking, refurbishing or remaking, or even when you take over. We're writing some cleaning procedures and what the importance of cleaning is. So we're looking at all that to write a standard. Uh, The other thing is monitoring standards. We're looking at monitoring standards for cooling water. What testing should you do besides just corrosion coupons? I mean, some people don't do corrosion coupons at all. What kind of biology testing? What kind of microbiological testing? You know, what's even for... Taking of Legionella samples. What's the standard for taking a Legionella sample properly? What's really representative of taking that? Do you take a first draw sample? Do you take a flush sample? Where do you take your samples? Do you take the aerator off? Do you not take the aerator off? So you're even looking at those kind of things to say, let's write a standard. So everybody's doing it the same. I mean, I guarantee you, We can take Legionella samples all day. I guarantee I can make samples pass and fail just by the way I take the sample. So what good is the data if you can do that? Is it really representative? That's the question you have to ask yourself. So if I'm taking a first draw sample from my hot water heater plus a flush sample, why do you take them? The same thing as do I take a first draw out of my tap, or do I let it get up to 120 degrees and then take my sample? So you're doing this for a hospital where we're being required to do all this legionella testing based on CMS requirements. How do you, how do you want to do it? Do you want to do it right or do you want to do it wrong? Do you want it to fail or you want it to pass? What's your goal here? But if you have a standard and tell everybody to do it exactly the same way, the testing is all done. They try to do it the same way. I mean, that's how they become CDC elite labs and things like that. So isn't the sampling the same thing?
0: Let me ask you, Jay, there's a a new water treater out there, maybe there's a new water treatment company out there, and they want to make sure they're doing at least the minimum. If it were up to you, what would every water treatment company do as a minimum for water treatment?
1: Well, first off, your makeup water is constantly changing. So if you're not monitoring your makeup water every time in, you have a problem here, Houston, because. Whatever you're putting in goes into the cooling tower. It goes into the boiler. Uh, work, I'm working on a, a facility right now it had a condensate polisher. They because the facility basically had a leak in one of their domestic hot water returns from their steam. So their condensate had a lot of hardness in it. Conductivity is high. They couldn't locate which hot water domestic hot water tank was leaking, but they knew one of them was fine. So they put a condensate polisher, which was a water softener. What tests do you do on a water softener? Just feed water? Just hardness? Oh, it's good? Is that what we say? No, you're supposed to be a problem solver. Do you check conductivity? Do you see if there's chlorides in there? Well, what happened is on this from the condensate polisher, the condensate polisher was leaching chlorides out. It destroyed the deaerator. Now we're talking $500,000 to replace the deaerator. It also destroyed the vent condenser. There's big pieces of equipment we're dealing with. So it depends on the pieces of equipment that you're dealing with and the cost factors. So you're generating your test procedures should all be based on the cost factors for the client. And it could be a very small cooling tower, but but it might be on top of a 50-story building. How do you get a cooling tower, uh, something that weighs on top of a 50-story building? It's a helicopter. That's not cheap. That's not cheap. There's so many other things that go into that. So you definitely have to test the makeup water. And you should be doing enough tests to provide you information about that makeup water and minute changes. Could be the phosphate coming in, could be higher or lower. The aluminum, you know, we get some aluminum in from our things. Now you're not, may not do that aluminum number all the time, but you may want to do the aluminum number every six months. You might miss something, or if you have problems. We know from Bruce's training that aluminum getting into a water softener because it's a plus three ion, stays on the resin beads, can foul resin beads, can other do other things also. So you have to look at those kind of things and say, how can those factors impact me? And some of that's just you can tell by your conductivity. Is it really changing? But if you're doing your P and M alkalinity, waters change all the time. You have drought conditions, you have rainy conditions. I mean, right now in the city of Pittsburgh and around the surrounding areas, our conductivity in our office is normally is around 1100. Right now it's around 600. So building around us, hey, I used to be 1100, now I'm 600 with an alkalinity of, of 300 versus down to 150. Do you change your treatment program for that? Sure you do. So if you're not testing your city water and doing enough analysis, how do you know? So it depends on. After that, are you dealing, doing with cooling towers? Are you doing your corrosion coupons? Are you doing biologicals? We're supposed to be te- protecting systems from corrosion, fouling, microbiological growth, and scale. Are you doing your balances? Are you doing iron and coppers? Why am I doing my coppers? Oh, because heat exchangers made of copper. You know, you just. You, you want to build trends. The more data you have, the easier it is to build trends. That's why we have the e- services and other things like that to generate information so we, as water doctors, you wouldn't go to a physician and say, well, don't do any tests on me. I could be dying. Well, how are you going to know if you don't do any testing
0: and you're only doing the inhibitor and the conductivity? And everything's good. That is the comment that I hate to see on reports. matter of fact, I saw a report just last week from a company that I will not mention, and there was conductivity on there and PTSA just on the cooling tower water. And the comment said, everything looks not just good, Jay, but great. Everything looks great. They ran two parameters and wrote that comment down, and they were on to the next job.
1: Now you understand why I write bid specifications and say, this is the way you should be doing it. And where the company, I can bid very low by only having my guy there for a half hour and spending most of the time buying cookies or giving them donuts. That's, that's the whole issue. That's what you, you're not providing a good service. Do you want to be the best doctor you can be?
0: I always like to tell people that how do you know, you know, what, what do you know from the testing that you're doing that actually validates that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing? And I think there's so many people out there that don't ask that magic question, why? Why do I run this test? Why wouldn't I run this test? What am I going to do with that test? When people start asking that question then it becomes very apparent to why they need to run other testing because it's gonna lay down the path of what they need to do, what's going on with the system, and with that, you know maybe we don't need a standard. if People ask that question more, but for some reason, we've got a lot of service reports with two parameters on them and everything looks good, so why not have a standard so we all bring each other up to a level playing field And the customer gets, customers don't understand water treatment. They'll tell us that they do. There's so many of us that don't explain it to them right. And I never understood why that is. Is that because we don't want I'm saying we collectively. I know you and I do a really good job of, of explaining what it is that we do. But generally, water treaters don't. I want to keep my customer in the dark a little bit so maybe they don't hold me accountable. Maybe they don't ask me to do other tests. I don't know why that is. Why do you think that is, Jay? Well, I think
1: it's probably what you said. You're hoping they don't hold you accountable, but the problem is when we walk in, if you look at when I do the expert witness, the lawyers take us to be the experts. They take the client to be the dummy. We are the experts when we walk in there. You know about water, don't you? Yes. That's the answer you're going to give. And you can say, it's, it's not, I don't worry about that. Oh, I don't worry about that. Don't you think you should worry about it? You know, do you, do you think you should worry about the equipment? If the equipment specification says no more than 17 milligrams per liter of suspended solids, don't you think you should be monitoring that in a, in a heat pump system? I mean, the water furnace heat pumps and the train heat pumps say 17 milligrams per liter of total suspended solids. Do you think you should be monitoring it? Should you think you should be putting filtration on that system because you might not be able to attain that. I mean, myself, I like to do balances to compare my balances, my calcium and chloride balance versus conductivity balance. But sometimes I can't use chloride because if somebody's feeding bleach, can't use chloride. Or if I'm feeding one of the other oxidizing biocides. Or if I'm near the ocean, if my cooling tower is near the ocean, it's going to pull up drift from the ocean itself, which has high chlorides. So now I might have to run silica, or I might have to run other balances. So you have to look at that. Also, silica may not work, hey, a dust storm. You have to think and you have to run multiple balances and see where the number is. You can't just use conductivity, because guess what? What also drives conductivity? Oh, that drift bringing in silica, that drives it in. Chlorides, oh, that also drives up to conductivity. So you can't just use conductivity. You have to use a lot of different things. So the more bullets you have in your belt or the more testing you do, it provides you information to provide solutions to your client. And the whole biggest thing of this whole industry is we are water doctors, as I said. Isn't it great when you predict what's going to happen before it happens. Doesn't the client look at you a little bit differently? That you've told him what was gonna happen and what happened?
0: Hey, you got this boiler feed water tank that's running at 50 degrees. You're gonna pit up all this metal if you keep doing that and then they open it up and that happened. Hey, you're a magician. No, it's not. That's just how things work. It's testing. You've done enough testing to predict
1: what's going to happen. He may decide not to do what you want him to do. Do what you need to do, that you need to raise the water temperature of your feed water tank. Hey, you know that's going to cost me X amount of dollars to do. He makes that thing, but what happens is
0: you just look like a genius. And Jay, if there is one thing that you have drilled into me for the last 20 years, it's when you have that conversation with that client, write it down. If it didn't get written down, you always told me, it did not happen. I said that to a lawyer the other day. He says,
1: uh, "Can you tell me something?" And I said, "Well, if it wasn't written down, it wasn't done." But the thing is, that's that sometimes is is to me one of your biggest protecting statements. Are you, you know, when I see on a uh, water treatment report feed water temperatures or other things. It provides more information to solve problems. And when those kind of that kind of information is on data, it makes it so easy to solve problems and provide understanding of what's occurring, why things are corroding, why things are happening. And that's why doing so much testing is so very important. I mean, yes, can you over test? I'm sure you can. I mean, we don't want our doctors over testing, but why do they, why do they test? Why do our doctors send us for more tests than maybe what they should? For liability, because if you just get sick and die, your family is going to sue that doctor. What do you think, what are we? Are we any different? We're gonna get sued if we're we're doing enough testing, then we can predict what happens and we can stop what's gonna happen. We can probably help solve that patient.
0: Jay, let me ask, when can the Scaling Up Nation anticipate to see these standards coming out that you're talking about? Give me more of time in a day.
1: Give me more time in a day. And, you know, it's, it's, you know we're trying to write the standards based on getting uh, consensus.
0: So to be clear, this just isn't you sitting in a room writing standards. You're working with a whole bunch of people over a whole sampling of the different water treatment areas. Well, it's, it's
1: just not just water treatment people. It's other people in other industries, what they want to see. Uh, in ASTM D-1903, we have multiple people sitting on that committee, and we look at different things to say, okay, how we're going to write this. And that they provide input and looking at peer review. How long did it take 188 to be developed? Years. Years. So it just doesn't happen overnight. So it's people who, you know, getting people involved. It's like anything else, even in the AWT, getting volunteers to, to do it. And then remember, volunteering,
0: you're not getting paid to do it. Well, Jay, I've got so many questions to ask you. I'm going to ask that you come back next week. And we pick up to what I've been dying to ask you about, where we take all the information that we've been talking about this week, you reviewing customer service reports and finding out, was somebody negligent? And now you're acting as an expert in that area and you're either for or against somebody and you're talking to a jury because this has now gone to court. So if you don't mind, I'd love to have you back next week and talk about that. That sounds good. All right, Jay, thank you so much for coming on and we will see you next week. Okay, Trace. Nation, I told you Jay Farmery is just a wealth of information. So much so we couldn't finish today's episode we're going to go ahead and stack it into next week so when we come back we're going to talk about what it's like for Jay to be an expert witness with water treatment now today's episode I hope you're thinking if we had a standard out there that would not only make my job easier because I knew what I was working to It allows us to better educate our customer in what they should expect in water treatment. Now, Jay doesn't get paid a cent for all of the work that he does on those committees, and neither does anybody else who works on those committees. They see a need for something, and then they give their time to benefit the industry, to make the entire industry better. So for all those out there that are working on these committees, thank you for doing that because as we all know, a rising tide definitely raises all boats and we appreciate your work for that. Well, next week, folks, we're going to come back with Jay Farmery and we're going to learn about what we should be doing today. Of course, there's no court that we're talking about at all. There's no issues with customers, nobody's complained about anything and we've definitely don't have a lawsuit against our companies, but how would we work differently today if we were able to take a glimpse out of what somebody like Jay does in the courtroom and now we can get things in order so maybe they'll never get that far. Folks, I can't wait to come at you next week on Scaling Up H2O.